0: Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 5. It, it's always difficult for me to uh, know how to conclude a sermon series that is that has worked its way all the way through a book of, of Scripture. Uh, and, and that challenge is, is present with this uh, letter of James. How How shall we end a sermon series like this one, where we have seen over the last 10 weeks or so all of the things that Faith does. Faith perseveres. Faith does not show uh, preference or partiality. Faith works. It demonstrates itself. It gives evidence to its existence in the things that we do. Faith lives with integrity. Faith seeks wisdom from God. Faith uh, does not follow the way of the world. Faith is humble about ourselves and trusting of God. Faith is generous. Faith is patient and perseveres. How should we wrap up this sermon series? Well, certainly we want to wrap it up the way James wraps up his letter. And the way James wraps up his letter is by demonstrating to uh, his original audience, to the early church and to us today, that, that in all of this, that faith ultimately pursues God's will. We've seen over the last 10 weeks all of the things that faith does. But what about those times in life when faith just doesn't? Like those, those times in life where as much as you believe in Jesus and as tightly as you are clinging to Him, you, your, your faith is just kind of shaky. It's, 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 life is, is maybe more challenging than, than we feel that our, our faith can endure. What do we do when, when faith doesn't or doesn't seem like it, it is enough to get us through? I think the way that James ends his letter is instructive to us for times like these. And in times like these where where faith just seems not to, that what faith we do have continues to pursue God's will in every circumstance. Genuine faith in the life of the Christian will lead him, will lead her to pursue God's will in every situation, in every circumstance in life, even if it feels like that won't be enough. Faith just continues to pursue God. Sincere Christians, we who know Jesus ought to pursue God's will in our lives and in the lives of others in every circumstance of life. That is what we aim for, even when it seems maybe too hard to do. I would hope that from what we read in James's letters, he closes his letter to the church today, that, that we would be inspired, that we would be led, that we would be encouraged to continue to commit to seeking God and His will in every season of life. By that, I don't don't mean winter, spring, summer, or fall. But by every season of life, I I mean good days and bad days. Days where everything is going well and days where everything seems to be falling apart. Days where we are healthy and days when we are on our deathbed. Days where our our faith is as strong as it can be and days where we feel like it's hanging by a thread. that, That we would continually seek God's will as faithful believers are to do in every season of life. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word, James 5, verses 13 through 20? James the Apostle, brother of Jesus, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, closes his letter this way Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. and Let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. God, speak to us this morning through your word. Encourage our hearts. Strengthen our resolve. Give us faith where we lack it and dependence upon you where that is needed. Find the hearts of the hurting. Heal the bodies of those who are ill. Bring wandering sinners back to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are times in my life, and this morning is one, where I don't know why or how, but God's Word just just moves me. I did not uh, did not expect to have this reaction <laughs> to James five this morning. Um, just to be honest, this this last week has been a kind of a hard one for me. Um, my life's not falling apart. Uh, just kind of had a hard week. You guys have those from time to time, and. Uh, to be honest, I'm not realizing how much I need James five thirteen through 20 until I read it just now with you. So, um, so I pray that, that God would, would use uh, these words to minister to our hearts today. Excuse me. What do we do when faith doesn't? We pursue God's will anyway. We keep pressing into the the person of God, the love of Jesus in, in every season. In verse 13 of James 5, James shows us that faith pursues God's will in sorrow and in joy, in good weeks and hard weeks. Verse 13 is exceedingly practical, I think, and applicable to us immediately. Is anyone among you suffering? James asks. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It's hard to expound much more upon James' words here. This, this verse, uh, verse 13, the first half of it, is anyone suffering? I think in, in some ways ought to call our attention back to the beginning of James's letter when in chapter 1, verse 2, he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you suffer, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, laugh, lacking in nothing, suffering, works God's purposes in our lives. Hard weeks, hard seasons of life work us into a a greater dependence upon God as the world around us may seem to be crumbling or things just are not good. You know, when we suffer, that doesn't mean that, that, that we are necessarily being punished by God. Is anyone among you suffering? James doesn't answer that question with, you better turn from your sin and get your life right so God will fix things for you. He doesn't say that. He says, are you suffering? Are you going through trials? Then pray. Give your attention. Give your heart. Depend upon God. Turn, turn all of yourself over to His care, His love, His control over your life. That's the best place to be when you're suffering. Yeah. Know this, friends. It is right to Pray and to seek God's will, and and to seek his help in times of of hardship, and suffering, and depression, and pain. Are you suffering? Pray. On the other hand, are you cheerful? James asks, is is anyone among you cheerful? Is anyone in the congregation experiencing a season, not of pain or hardship, but of joy, and cheer, and, and, and blessedness in life? Well then, praise the Lord for it. Let him sing praise. The point of both of these questions and exhortations, are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Sing praise. The point of both of these is this, that whether in difficult or in joyous seasons of life, the attention of every believer, the, the direction, the orientation of the heart of every believer, the direction of our prayer and our praise should always be toward God. When life is difficult, sometimes it's very easy to turn to God in prayer. Sometimes our prayers are, are, are not led very well, though. Sometimes we're going through seasons of hardship, seasons of pain, and we pray prayers like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why is all this happening? I, I, I thought I was being faithful. Why is my life so hard? Why can't you just fix this stuff? What, I, I thought I was loving and following you, but now I have cancer. What is going on, God? What's the problem? What am I doing? Rather, I think the kind of prayer that James intends for the one who is suffering is not to say, God, why are you doing this? But to say, God, even while all this is happening, I still trust you. I know that this hardship is for my good and it's for your glory. I know, I know the, the, the depression in, in my life is, is that you, will, you intend to use to lead me to greater dependence upon you. The, the day is dark, but God, I know that there's light at the end of the tunnel, so I'm just praying that you would get me through the day get me through this season, get me through my treatment, get me through whatever it may be so that I can see your hand at work. God, show me your will. It's easy to turn to God in, in prayer, I think, when we're suffering. It's harder to turn to God in praise when things are going well. We seem to be mindful of God when things are bad and less mindful of him when things are going good. When things are going well, we don't see our continued need for God. When things are going well, we may not even see the, the good seasons of life, those happy seasons of life as blessing from God. And so James uh, attacks that, that uh, maybe tendency to forget God even in good times by saying, is anyone cheerful? Well, then you have reason to sing praise. And not to yourself, right? Not to sing praise to your boss who gave you a raise. Not to sing praise to your professor who passed you. Right? But to sing praise to God, whose provision is constantly in our lives. Dear Christian, pursue God's will in times of sorrow and in joy. Determine in your heart today, you who know Jesus, to set your attention on God in any and every circumstance in life. If you're suffering, and even if you're cheerful, pray. Turn your attention to God and really, really pray. It's hard to know when we've really, really prayed, I think. I know that I fall into the the tendency to, to pray through maybe the, the same sort of outline of prayer all the time. The, the acts outline: A, C, T, S—adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication—and I and I got to work through each of those in order. Because if I get if I get the S before the T, well, the, the, that's not how I'm supposed to pray the acts prayer, right? So I, you know, so, so I'm more focused on the structure of my prayer than the content of it. I'm more focused on the, the 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 order of the words that I'm saying than I am the God of the universe to whom I am praying. Sometimes we need to, as D.A. Carson says, pray until we pray. Pray until you pray. Carson says Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality that attends not a little praying. He says we are especially prone to such feelings when we pray for only a few minutes, rushing to be done with a mere duty. To enter the spirit of prayer, we must stick to it for a while. If we pray until we pray, eventually we come to delight in God's presence, to rest in his love, to cherish his will. Even in dark or agonized praying, we somehow know we are doing business with God. Friend, are you suffering? Then pray until you pray. We need to not just learn to pray until we pray, but we need to learn to sing until we praise. I sometimes fear that Christians do not sing, not because we are tone deaf, not because we can't carry a tune, but we do not sing because we have not tuned our hearts to the melody of God's grace to us in Jesus. You see, a heart full of the melody of the gospel cannot but erupt through our throats in songs of worship in every season of life. I do my best sing, singing, I think, in private or in a room that is loud enough for other people not to hear me sing. But dear Christian, it is important that we sing. Some of you may say, men especially, I don't know why this is our fault but, uh, or our problem, but men, we often say, oh, I'm just not a singer. That's not for me. Dear friend, God has made you to sing. James instructs you to sing. Brothers, are you cheerful? Then sing praise. Even if it's bad, sometimes, melodically bad, sometimes you have to erupt in in a verse of wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like the fountain, all sufficient grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgressions, sing it. Greater far than all my sin and shame. Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus. Praise his name. Man, it's good to sing. Church, I pray that we would, we would be a church that loves to sing God's praise in good seasons, and hard seasons. To praise God in song together. Not, and, and not to sing just because our favorite song is being sung on Sunday but to sing because the words of the song are pointing our affections, directing our intentions to God who saves us. It is good to sing, church. When you are cheerful, sing songs of praise. Men, brothers, lead us in singing. The, the best times of worship, that I've, of, of worship through song that I've ever experienced in my life have been in rooms full of tone-deaf men Who cannot sing a melody, but whose hearts are tuned to the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There there is nothing like hearing a room full of men sing praise to God. Women have beautiful voices, and I love to hear women sing, but my heart is stirred when men of the church sing. Brothers, would you join me in being men of the church who sing praise to God in every season of life? I don't care if you can't carry a tune. I promise you, Pastor Danny doesn't care if you can carry a tune or not. Sing, sing loud. Sing loud enough for people to hear. Sing loud enough for your sons to not know how to sing and loud enough to make your wife cringe, but loud enough to make all of us, to make all of us know that Jesus has captivated your heart and that in every season, hard or could, it is worthwhile to sing praise to God. Faith pursues God's will in times of sorrow and in times of joy as we pray. Pray until we pray and until and when we sing until we praise. Genuine faith in Christ continues to pursue God's will. Also in seasons of sickness and sin. Also in seasons of sickness and sin. Verses 14 through 18 of James chapter 5 are... Uh, admittedly, some difficult verses because they raise some questions that require answers that are, that are difficult to answer. James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working genuine faith in christ people are following jesus pursue god's will even when we're sick and even when we're sinful and we do this first through the ministry of the elders james says if anyone's sick let him call for the elders so who are the elders who are the who, who are the, the Christians of the church supposed to call upon when they are sick, when they are disabled, when they are when they are are so ill that they cannot make it, they cannot be a part of the assembled body of believers? They're to call the elders. That word is. The Greek word presbyteroi, it means those it is those men who are called by God and called by the church to give pastoral care and teaching and leadership to the church. We call them pastors. Uh, other places of scripture call them overseers. Uh, 1 Peter 5 and Acts, 9, Acts chapter 19 speak to the, the synonymous nature of those three words, elder, pastor, overseer. These are the people that the church is to call to themselves when when members of the church uh, are are sick and ill and and cannot be there in the assembly, when they need prayer for their illness, they're to call upon the elders. Here at our church, we presently have two, Pastor Danny and myself. I think there is here in this verse, though not explicitly, though subtly, uh, uh, two different arguments. One, an argument for having multiple pastors in your church. Because one man on his own can hardly carry the burden of pastoral care and leadership for a congregation of hundreds. And God gifts churches with multiple men who fit the qualifications for being an elder or an overseer, a pastor, according to 1 Timothy 3. It is good for the church to unwrap the gifts of God that are men who are called and qualified to give pastoral care and leadership to the church. Secondly, there's a subtle implicit argument, I think, for the importance of local church membership. Dear Christian, if you are sick, if you are ill enough that you cannot make it to worship in a local church, but you're not a member of any local church, what elders are you going to call upon? You can't get on the phone and and expect to get a hold of the 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 five uh, lead pastors of the biggest churches in Albuquerque and get them to come to your house to pray for you if they don't know who you are and you are not known by them. Dear Christian, this is a call to, in some sense, to be a member of a local church where there are pastors who know who you are, who care for you, who desire to lead you into greater spiritual uh, uh, maturity and obedience to Christ. You're supposed to call on the men that you have entrusted your spiritual care to. Call upon the elders. And what are the elders to do when they come to the sick person? This is the second question that these verses raise. What are they to do for the sick person? Well, first, they are to pray. Just like in verse 13. Are you suffering? Let let that person pray. And let the elders come and pray for him also. And the, the prayer that we are speaking of, even prayer is referenced in chapter 1, verse 5, where, where James, in, the, in his letter, encourages people to pray for wisdom. Do you need wisdom? Pray to God for it, because he loves to give it. In the case of the sick person, the elders are to pray for God's will to be done in their lives, even through the sickness. They're to pray for healing, for sure, but also that God's will will be done. So they're to come together around that person and to pray for him. Secondly, they're also to, as James says, anoint the person with oil. Some of us Baptists may cock our head a little bit at that, huh? You who have dogs and you say something and your dog doesn't understand, you use that huh? kind of look, it's what we may do here, anoint with oil, what does that mean? Well, the anointing of oil in this passage is most likely a, a symbolic gesture done by the pastor uh, or by the elders for the person who is sick. Anointing, we know, all through Scripture is is used most often uh, to symbolize uh, uh, consecration of an individual to the purposes of God. Kings are anointed in Scripture as God's chosen leaders over his people. You may recall Samuel uh, pouring oil on the head of uh, young David as God called him to be the next king to follow Saul. Jesus himself was anointed with perfume by Mary, the sister of Lazarus, in front of the disciples as an act of worship on her part for what Jesus would do in giving his life just uh, days later on the cross for the sins of mankind. In a similar way, the act of anointing a sick person here is is not pouring oil on the person to bring healing, although there may be some medicinal aspect to the, the application of oil to the body. But most especially it is that the elders and the sick person alike are setting their attention on God and giving the results of the illness over to the will to God. They are consecrating their illness for God's purposes. It is to say, if God heals me of this illness, it is for more productive work in this life for His glory. And if God allows the sickness to end in my death, then that is for His glory as well. When the elders come and anoint the sick person with oil and pray for them, they are anointing that individual and praying for God's will to be done in their lives. Amen. And we pray, we ask that, that God's will would be healing. We want God to heal those who are sick. But if that is not God's will, we are praying that God, you would, you would take and have your, your way in whatever the results of this person's illness might be. And that we might be attuned to your will. That we might know what it is and live productively As a result of it, suffer productively because we know you're well. Well, what is the the, the intended result of the prayer and anointing by the elders uh, on this sick person? Well, verse 15 seems to indicate that the intended result of the praying and the anointing is healing, is physical healing. James seems to speak with much confidence about this. He says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And there he doesn't mean salvation of the sick is a, a spiritual salvation, but, but saving in the sense of being healed. A prayer of faith will heal the sick person. Being raised up, right, he will be, uh, the Lord will raise him up, likely has to do with just the physical restoration of health. We could read into this passage uh, a forward uh, looking to the the resurrection when we are raised up with Christ on the last day, never to die again, never to be sick again. And, And that wouldn't necessarily be wrong, but I don't think that that's primarily what James has in view. He means physical healing. He he expects, he intends that when the elders of the church go to pray for their church members who are ill, who are hurting, who are sick, who are suffering, that that when they consecrate this person's illness for the purposes of God, that God will bring healing. But what if the sick person isn't healed? What if you as a church member become become maybe deathly or or, or dangerously ill? You call it. Pastor Danny and I, come to your place and we, we uh, put oil on your head. Not a lot, maybe just a little. We don't want to make a big mess. You know. Pray for God's healing in your life. We consecrate your illness to God. We say, God, we know that you are working in every circumstance of our lives, even our suffering. And so we pray that you would have your will in this person's life. We pray that your will would be to heal them. Heal them, God. We know that you can. We pray that you will. And what if you die? Does that mean that that that, may, that mine or Pastor Danny's prayer has been ineffective? Does that mean that our prayer is somehow faithless? Certainly not. You know, Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But this does not mean that we can... Use Jesus' name that we can pray in his name for someone to be healed as a way of manipulating Jesus to do anything outside of his or outside of the Father's will. We don't get to say, God, heal this person in Jesus' name, amen, and and God has to answer our prayer because we use this magical incantation of Jesus' name. Rather, the purpose of praying is to seek the will of the Father. And to, as we pray, as we pray until we pray, to have our will, our desires, our perspective on life aligned to God's in our praying. So if a prayer, even a prayer of faith, faith, a prayer for healing is not answered with physical healing, the will of the Father is not wrong. The prayer should not be assumed to be faithless but rather that God's will for that sickness is different. The will of God is to be himself glorified and to demonstrate that his grace is sufficient even in death, even in sickness. You know Paul, the apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, speaks about having this thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what that was, but most scholars believe it was some sort of physical illness that just plagued him most of his life. That Paul prayed three times, if ever there's a person in the New Testament that prayed with faith, I think Paul's that guy. Paul prayed three times that God would relieve him of this thorn in the flesh. Take it away, God, he says. Because if you take it away, I can, I can minister better for you. If you take away my, my suffering, if you take away this illness, whatever it is that, is that is bothering me, I can be far more effective for you, God, for you, Jesus, and for the gospel. So just make me well so that I can be more than who I am. And God's answer to Paul was, no, not going to do it. You're going to struggle with this illness till the day you die. Why? So that God could show to Paul that his grace was sufficient for every weakness, for every illness. And that God's power is perfected in our weakness. So when we pray for the one who is sick, and we pray believing that God can heal, and they're not healed, maybe even they die, that doesn't mean our prayer was useless. It doesn't mean our prayers were faithless. What it means is that God is showing His power. He's perfecting His power and His grace in the life of that person, even though they die. God's purposes are not always for us to be healthy in this life, but they are always for Him to be glorified. And His purposes are always uh, to show that His grace through faith in Jesus, is sufficient for every trial. Yeah. So James expects that the sick person will be healed. But he is not, uh, say, he's not arguing the inverse. He's not saying the prayer of faith will heal the one who is sick and the one who is not sick was not faithfully prayed for. That's not what James is saying. What he is doing is simply encouraging, with, with strong words and much confidence, for the church to pray for those who are sick because God can heal. The first result, intended result of this prayer and anointing is healing, but the second result is forgiveness of sins. You see? Verse 15, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, the sick person. Now, James, we do not believe, is intending to say that all sickness is the result of sins. You don't catch a cold or the flu because God's trying to teach you something about disobedience in your life. Though we do believe and agree with what Scripture says that all sickness and even death exist in the world because of sin. Because Adam and Eve broke the, the relationship of dependence upon God as they trusted in their own ability to provide for themselves and their own authority over their lives by eating that fruit which God commanded them not to. In breaking that relationship, all creation was broken, was stained in some way. We get sick because there's sin in the world. There are hurricanes and uh, natural disasters and earthquakes and, and plagues because there is sin in the world. Because creation is not working the way God designed it to work because we, by our disobedience and rebellion against God, have broken things. So all sickness exists because of sin in the world. But sometimes we do get sick because of sins in our own life. Sometimes we do fall ill because the sins that we are engaged in lead to physical illness. Right? Sometimes we have patterns of behavior, uh, drug or alcohol abuse or, or uh, are, are pursuing maybe sexual relationships outside of the, the bounds of a, a committed uh, marriage between one man and woman. And there are legitimate illnesses that come from these sins. Sometimes sickness is caused by sin but sometimes it's not sometimes you just get the flu most of the time we just get cancer so don't hear if you hear me say anything don't hear me saying this don't hear me saying that if you have cancer it's because God is punishing you okay that's not for me to say sometimes we just get sick because the world is broken but James does seem to indicate that some sicknesses are the result of sin (laughs) Physical healing of the person who calls for the elders to pray for him and who is repenting of his sins, physical healing of that person is to be a sign and an affirmation of the forgiveness of his sins. So if there's a person who's come ill and their illness is a direct result of sinful choices and lifestyle habits in their life, and that person is healed, uh, uh, whether through Uh, Whether through uh, means of of God's common grace through medicine and and medical intervention or miraculous healing without any of that, their healing is to be a sign that the sins of that repentant person have been forgiven. One of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament comes in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus is going around Galilee and and, and teaching in different places and he's gathering massive crowds around him, not because he intends to, but because people are just flocking to this man who teaches with authority and he's meeting in the house, uh, most think it was Peter's house, and there while he's teaching in the house and the house is crowded, nobody else can get in, these four friends of a paralyzed man tear apart the roof of Peter's house to drop the paralyzed man down in the middle that, that he might be healed And Jesus looks at the man who is paralyzed, and the crowd is standing around him, and he says, which is easier, to tell this man your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, get up, take up your mat, and walk? The implication is that it's much harder to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. It's harder to say, be healed, because if Jesus says, be healed, and the man is not healed, well, then Jesus is a liar. You can say to someone, your sins are forgiven, and not see any visual change in their, in their life, right? The, uh, their, their head won't glow with a halo above it or anything like that, right? So presumably Jesus could say, your sins are forgiven, and everyone would say, ah, that's easy to say. We don't see any results of that. But Jesus says, in order for you to know that I, that the Son of Man, has authority, has power, has control and, and, and dominion to forgive sins, and he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, do the harder thing. Get up. Take up your mat and walk. And so the, the, the man who was previously paralyzed picks up his mat. He, he, he stands up. He walks out of the house totally healed. And what's the point? Not that the man was healed, but that Jesus has power to forgive sins. So when we pray for those who are sick, we ought to pray with the direction uh, uh, in our prayer leading that person to turn from whatever sin is in their lives. And trusting that when God brings healing, it's because he's, he's done, he's done the, the demonstrable thing that shows he has authority to forgive sins by healing this person's body. Don't hear me say, I'm not saying, that every time we pray for sick people, we should expect them to get well. And, that if, and I'm not saying that if a person does not get well, that their sins are not forgiven. But I am saying that we should pray for those who are sick. And that if we have sins, we should confess them and be prayed for. We should pray with the help of the elders, says James. The one who is sick, the one who is in sin, should also pray with the help of the church. Look at verse 16. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Prayer for physical healing, prayer for forgiveness of sins is not just the job of the elders. It's not just the responsibility of pastors, but it is the responsibility of the whole church together. It is the responsibility of the family of faith to bear the burdens of one another's sickness and one another's sin together. Prayer for healing from one Christian to another, even if neither are are, uh, pastors in the church, official leaders in the church. Prayer from one Christian to another is right and good. And because confession of sin always leads to spiritual healing and often leads to physical healing, it is right to maintain spiritual health by regularly confessing our sins to each other and praying for one another. This is hard to do. Because even as much as we do not live in an honor-shame culture in the West, in the United States, there is still something shameful that we feel about confessing our sins to somebody else. We all know that feeling of smallness, that that temporary moment of dread that comes when just before, as we are confessing as we are saying to another believer I looked at pornography this week I lied to my wife this week I cheated on my taxes last year I'm harboring anger and hatred toward another brother or sister in the church it is scary to confess these things to other people because we have so often in our minds as Christians this picture of what we must be like as Christians Everything's got to be okay. My marriage has to always be perfect. I can never fall or falter or stumble in sin. And if I do, everyone's going to think I'm worthless. Everyone's going to think less of me. People are going to hate me. They're going to kick me out of the church. And we so often sit in our sin and avoid confession out of fear for the consequences rather than step into with confidence in Christ, confessing our sins to one another because of the healing that we know that comes with it. You know, psychologists have, have done studies of people who confess sin and, and what happens in their brains and, and with their, just their mental health when they confess sin. And do you know what happens when, when people give a full confession of wrongdoing that they have committed? They have committed? They feel better. The stress that comes with feeling like I've not lived up to God's expectation for me, or worse, the church's expectation for me. All the dread that is heaped upon us by by our fear of people knowing that we're not perfect. All of that is ultimately relieved when we actually tell people, you know what, I'm not perfect. I still need Jesus. I struggled this way. I stumbled this way. And I don't just need Jesus. I need your help need your help to help me follow Christ more closely, to walk with him more dearly. It is the responsibility of the church, of you, Christians, brothers and sisters, to share your sins with one another. And not just with the, I was a sinner this week. Oh yeah, me too. Boy, I feel better about that. But to share our sins and say, I sinned this week and it was not good. It was not good for my soul. It was not good for my relationship with God. It was not good for my relationship with whoever I sinned against. I need you to know it, not just so I can get it off my chest, but I need you to know it so that you can keep me accountable, so that you can help me to walk with greater faithfulness next week. We pursue God's will in seasons of sickness and in sin when we do it with the help of the church. And we pursue God's will in these periods, in these times of life, sickness and sin, Always, always, always through prayer that is offered in faith. Always through communication with God. And and, and not just speaking to Him, but also hearing from Him. With faith, with belief, with trust that He hears us. Here in verses 17 and 18, James uses an illustration of an Old Testament character, Elijah. A picture of what faith-filled prayer looks like. And so he takes us back in the Old Testament to 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. In 1 Kings 17, the wicked king Ahab became king in, over the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ahab erected altars to false gods in Israel. In response to this, Elijah prayed to God for a drought. He prayed, God, place your judgment, your discipline upon the kingdom of Israel so that they... Excuse me, so that they will repent and turn to you again. Deuteronomy 11:17 tells us, God, in God's word, that drought was a sign of God's judgment, his discipline upon a rebellious people. And certainly, Elijah knows that God would judge the idolatry of Ahab, this wicked king who's worshipping false gods in Israel. So Elijah, a man of prayer and a man of faith, who knows the will of God, who knows that God's desire for his people, is always to repent of sin. He prays with faith to God in accordance with God's will to bring the people of Israel to repentance uh, as a a means of going through this time of drought. After several years, James says three and a half years, Elijah would have this really cool, uh, I think it's cool, battle, if you will, a showdown with the, the prophets of the false god Baal. They meet together on Mount Carmel in 2 Kings chapter 18. They each build altars. The prophets of Baal build an altar to the false god Baal and uh, Elijah builds uh, an altar to uh, God and upon each there is a sacrifice made and the prophets of Baal are to go first. They're to offer their sacrifice and the, and the, the sort of the, the the crux of the matter is this, that whichever God answers with fire from heaven is the true God. And so the prophets of Baal make their altar with a, a a bull that they sacrificed on top of it to the false god Baal and they pray all day long out loud, cutting themselves with swords and doing all kinds of crazy and perverse things to get Baal's attention. And you know what happens? Nothing. Silence. No one heard them. Then Elijah quietly goes over. In a time of drought, he takes several jars of water and dumps it, saturates the entire altar and the sacrifice on top of it. And then he quietly, humbly prays for God to show his grace and mercy upon the people of Israel and to answer his prayer with fire from heaven. And you know what happens? Fire from heaven comes down and consumes the entire sacrifice. God showing that he is the only true God. And the result of that is the prophets of Baal are totally undone and the people of Israel repent and turn to God in faith. And then it rains symbol, picture of God's judgment, his discipline lifted from his people Israel because Elijah has prayed in faith for God to do his will, to bring people to repentance. He has prayed in accordance with God's will because he has spent so much time in prayer to God, so much time expressing faith in God. He is so tuned to God's will that what he prays is exactly what God intends to do. This is how we are to pray in times of sickness and sin. Like Elijah. To pray until we pray. To pray until we've done business with God. Or, or should I say, until God has done business with us. To pray until we have prayed and been shaped by that prayer to know what God's will is so that we can pray all the more effectively. Christian, in times of life where you struggle and faith just seems not to be enough, press harder into it. And allow God to shape your will, your desires. Allow him to shape your dispositions and affections through the practices, the disciplines of confession and prayer so that your prayer might be effective. The German theologian and uh, victim of uh, of the Nazi army, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote that he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It means the person who has sins that are unconfessed is totally alone. But it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the the pious, for the religious, for the sanctimonious to understand. It is the grace of the gospel that confronts us with the truth and says you are a sinner. A great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to the God who loves you. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says you are a sinner. And if you die alone in unconfessed sin, you die alone. But the invitation of the gospel is to come as the sinner that you are, to confess your sins to God who loves you, who receives you with grace as you trust in Jesus. Experience the the mental, physical, spiritual healing that comes, Christian, with sharing your sins, confessing your sins to a trusted brother or sister and walking in repentance. Confessing sin has healing effects as we release the guilt and shame of our rebellion against God into the hands of a capable and gracious God and that with the help of friends in Christ who will keep us accountable to walk in repentance. Confessing sin places us closer in the will of God for that is what He wants for us. He wants us to be done with sin. And prayer together as the body of Christ, elders with those who are sick, prayer together for God's help in this matter is spiritually, mentally, and physically healing. Friend, if you are struggling with sickness today, with depression today, with with a troubled soul because of the sin in your life, Confess it to Jesus. Bring it to the cross. Christ has paid for the, the, the consequences of your sin as he hung there and died. And he has given you an invitation to new life and, and right relationship with God as he was raised from the dead. Jesus says, come to you, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen. But friends, we cannot experience the rest that Christ gives unless we confess our sin that separates us from God. So be brave, be courageous, ask God for help to confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that we may know God's will and we may be healed. Finally, faith pursues God's will in times of joy, in times of suffering, in times of sickness and sin, and also in the lives of those who wander. Verses 19 and 20 say, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What a way to finish a letter. Few things are harder in our lives as Christians and and even as a church than watching a Christian, a fellow believer, walk away from the faith to turn their back on Christ, turn their back upon the church, turn their back on God's Word and follow after whatever they choose to go after. Our desire, our expectation is that everyone who makes a profession of faith in Jesus does so sincerely, does so authentically, and intends to follow Christ faithfully every day of their lives. But nevertheless, we know and we have seen some who have walked away from the faith entirely. So James speaks now, not to those who are wandering, but to the Christian who will pursue God's will for the wanderer. A brother who wanders from the truth is a person who once professed faith in Jesus but who presently is denying its power, denying its change in their life to go after other spiritual or philosophical convictions. And when this happens, when a person walks away from faith, it is good and right for a Christian, for a brother or sister in Christ to go after the wanderer, after the one that has left the the path of following Jesus to follow their own path. Indeed, the one who walks away from Christ never to return is at least giving evidence. It may or may not be true in their own life, but it is at least giving visible evidence that their faith was never really in Christ to begin with. We believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Some of you know it as once saved, always saved. And what that doctrine communicates, what that teaching of the Bible communicates is that everyone who is genuinely saved by grace through faith in Jesus will will always be saved, cannot lose their salvation. We get this from passages of Scripture like John chapter 10 verses 28 and 29 when Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that God who saved you by his grace will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All those who have come to faith in Christ will persevere in faith until death. That is what we know to be true. But sometimes people walk away from faith. And what that Act of turning their back on faith communicates is that their faith was never genuine to begin with. Now that may or may not be true, right? I don't know. None of us can know the heart of the individual. None of us can say for certain their initial profession of faith was was untrue and and, and they didn't mean it anyway. And now they're living this way. I can't say that for certainty. Only God knows the heart of the individual. But we can discern the fruit of people's lives. And if the fruit of an individual's life says I'm not a Christian. We should treat them like they're not a Christian. We should go after them like they're not a Christian. And the Christian who goes after his brother or sister, who has walked away from the faith once professed, demonstrates a a truly Christian love for that brother or sister. Knowing that to walk away forever and never to return is effectively to say, I never believed. The picture that James gives of one Christian going after another who has wandered is a beautiful picture of of the redemptive concern and correction that believers ought to express and exercise among one another. It is a beautiful thing, Christian. When your brother or sister in faith walks away from the Lord, it is a beautiful thing when you go after them with the gospel that they first said that they believed. It is good when you follow them all the way up to the edge of the cliff of their spiritual doom and say, go no further. Over my dead body, will you continue to walk in unrepentant sin? Turn back. Embrace Christ. Repent. Rejoin the fellowship of the believers. Have your sins forgiven. Be made whole again. But I won't let you walk into destruction. I care about you too much. Your profession of faith is too valuable. The reputation of Christ and his church means too much to, let, to, to just mind my own business while, while you walk to your destruction. So to go after a brother or a sister, to bring them back to the faith is a beautiful thing. To pursue God's will for them, which is repentance in their lives, is a beautiful and redemptive thing. It is a picture, not a perfect, but a picture of the gospel itself of God who sends Jesus to die so that we wouldn't walk into our own destruction. Unfortunately, and I wish that James had, but James does not promise that all who wander will be brought back. He doesn't. Some will walk away from the faith forever. Some will abandon faith in Christ and embrace their own selfishness and autonomy forever and they will die that way. And then when this happens, it breaks our hearts and it grieves our Lord who desires that none should perish in their sin but that everyone should come to repentance. There is hope. There is healing. There is joy. There is abundant life in Jesus. those who are brought back by the God of grace and the love of their fellow Christian are saved from death. And in this sense, James means the second death. Right? The, the death that, that, that is separation from God for all eternity for everyone who, who has denied Him for their entire life. All of us will experience death as a result of sin unless Christ comes back to call the church to Himself before then. But those who are in Christ by faith will not experience the second death of eternal separation from God in hell. We are saved from that Further. Not only is the one, the wanderer, who is brought back, saved from second death, but also the one who brings him back, James says, covers a multitude of sins. This is not to say that the efforts of one believer loving another Christian enough to bring them back to faith in Jesus actually affects uh, forgiveness or salvation from God. I I don't bring God's forgiveness to any individual, that is God's business and, and God's to give, but that act of love of going after a, a believer who has wandered inspires forgiveness toward the wanderer from the congregation of faith. You see in wandering away from the faith, it is likely that the one who has left Christ temporarily has committed numerous sins as they went astray has has, has exercised and lived in all sorts of practices that are detrimental to their own life and the life of the church, maybe has broken relationships with people in the church, committed lots of sins as they have wandered. But being brought back, presumably they've seen the error of turning from Christ. They've sought to live with fresh repentance and as an advocate for the wanderer, like Barnabas did for Saul of Tarsus to the apostles in Acts saying, I know this guy persecuted Christians before, but I'm telling you, he's converted. He's legit. The guy's on fire for Jesus. You've got to accept him. In the same way, the one who goes after a wanderer says, I know this person sinned a lot as they left the church. I know they said things and did things that may seem unforgivable, but I'm telling you that repentance is genuine. I'm telling you their faith in Jesus is real. Again, it's vibrant. It's robust. Receive him back. And in so doing, in making a case for the wandering believer to the rest of the congregation, that love that they show covers a multitude of sins. It inspires forgiveness in the hearts of the congregation for the one who wandered. So that as they come back, we do not hold their sins over them so as to make them feel guilty and and not wanting to wander from the truth again, but to say, brother, sister, we love you. We're so glad you're back. We're so glad you have turned. your church, pursue God's desire. As faithful followers of Jesus, pursue God's desire for everyone to repent by going after those who wander from the faith, going after them with the very same gospel they once believed. That's what they need. They need to hear the truth of God's grace and love to sinners who have rejected his authority in their life. They need to hear that Christ died for their sins and was raised for their justification. They need to hear again and be reminded anew that whoever places their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord is his forever and will be made spiritually new, is born again, has the promise of eternal life. This is not true just for the Christian who wanders, but it is true for everyone who turns in repentance and faith to Jesus. Like Bonhoeffer says, don't, don't live forever alone in your sin, but bring your sin as a sinner to a God who knows everything about you. Say, God, this is my sin. It has broken my relationship with you. I know your son died for me. I know he was raised from the dead. I believe that he is risen and I'm giving my life to him as Lord. The invitation to knowing the grace of God is not just for believers who walk away, it's for everyone who is apart from Christ. Dear friend, if you are not in Christ today, if you don't know the love of God in Jesus' way, know it today. Yeah. Turn from your sin. Place faith in Jesus. Give your life to him as Lord and experience the healing that God in his word promises to give. Faith like this, faith like James talks about in all of his letter. Faith that does all the things that we see that faith does, you may fear is unattainable. Like you could be walking closely with Jesus for 60 years, 80 years, and still not get close to the kind of faith that James is talking about. As much as I try as, as hard as I or as much attention as I give to my spiritual life, I just can't be the Christian that James is describing. But isn't that just the point? Faith that works is not something that any Christian can master in his life. Faith that does, the things that James says faith does, is not something that any of us can master, that any of us can perfect, that any of us can get a PhD in. Rather, this faith that does all of these things And even when you feel like faith can't anymore, continues to pursue God's will in every part of our lives, this kind of faith is a path that we progress along as we journey closer and closer with Jesus. So, dear Christian, don't read James and be discouraged and feel like I can never live up to this picture of Christian faith. Rather, be encouraged in knowing that no one can But that you have God's word to constantly, at every turn, encourage you, to bring you back, to realign your will, your desires, your life to him. And that is his promise. It is his promise to do so as we will have a faith that pursues God's will each day of our lives. Dear friends, I hope you have been blessed by James. I have. I pray that this letter to the church will inspire fruit of faithfulness in your life. I know it has in mind. I pray that the results of James's letter to the church, which speak to us today, I pray the results would be seen 10, 100, 1,000-fold 1, in the future as we hold to and pursue the kind of faith that James advocates, the kind of faith that James encourage. Let us have a faith that works. Let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's have a faith that pursues God's will in any and every circumstance, especially going after those who don't yet know Christ or have walked away from Him entirely. Let us embrace the, the wonderful joy of seeing those who have walked in disobedience to God to, to come to Him and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior again. Amen. There is great rejoicing for those who turn to Christ. There is great healing for those who turn to Christ, dear friend, if that is you today don 't leave today don 't leave today wondering about your relationship with god don 't leave today w- w- with a broken heart and, and a heavy soul because of sins that you carry and trying to atone for on your own. Give those to Christ today, trust him with your life, become a follower of jesus and, and become a part of this family of faith that seeks to be the kind of people that Christ has saved us to be in a moment we 'll have a, sing a song of response and that is your time, your opportunity, Christian or non-Christian alike, to respond in obedience to God's word in whatever way that he is calling you. I'll be here. Corey, our student minister, will be here to pray with you about whatever you need pray for prayer for in your life today. Whether it's to turn to Christ for the first time or to return to Christ because you've wandered for a long time. Let faith bear fruit in your life today. Let's pray.